Good morning. Something about that last song uh, really actually plays in well to today's message. Um, a lot goes through my, I suppose a lot goes through everybody's minds as we're in worship of the Lord, and, uh, but I was kind of focused on the, the message of that last song while we were playing it. Has a pretty um, dramatic effect, I think, as we show our gratefulness to the Lord and uh, thinking back over, uh, just thinking back over my life and how God rescued me and how He continues to rescue me. Even today, when uh, I was in a situation recently, maybe I'll just. Uh, <clears throat> pull the curtain back a little bit, where, where my past was um, exposed kind of publicly. I'm just going to leave it at that. And, uh, and that's okay, because I'm a pretty transparent guy. It's different when there's a lot of people there, I suppose. But in the moment, the thoughts that were running through my head were this. I'm so, God that, I'm so glad and thankful that God forgave me for those sins. Like, that's a long time ago. That was a different me. That was a me that only just a couple of you in this room ever saw. And, um, man, am I glad that I was forgiven for those things. And, uh, and uh, anyway, I don't know why I'm starting off with that. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome, Daddy. And uh, <clears throat> we've just recently started this uh, series on the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel marks this real hard-hitting, fast-paced account of Jesus' life and ministry. We're, we've only gotten to, today we will finish chapter 2, so we're halfway through chapter 2. Already in just a chapter and a half, we've looked at uh, John the Baptist's ministry. We looked at Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. And then immediately the Word says, uh, he was the Spirit drew him or took him out into the wilderness, took Jesus out in the wilderness to be tested. We looked at those tests that Jesus endured. Definitely, we just looked at the top three, but for sure for 40 days of fasting and then being tested, Jesus was definitely tempted multiple times, more than just three. We've looked at a variety of uh, times where Jesus healed all forms of disease and illness, from the common flu to leprosy, oh, excuse me, not, uh, not leprosy, paralysis, uh, Jesus' ministry then was gaining this fame and it was gaining this following. In fact, last week we looked at that story of Jesus healing the paralytic and we saw where this man's uh, friends literally just tore the roof off a house to lower their buddy down in so that uh, he could be healed. Jesus, of course, first healed his heart by proclaiming that his sins were forgiven. Uh, that was plenty of an uproar all by itself. Then he healed his body. A little discussion after church yesterday, which was good, and I always appreciate it, uh, because I made the statement that uh, this guy was uh, likely uh, paralyzed from birth, but the Bible doesn't say that necessarily, so I will take that as my opinion only, but it's, we don't know. The reality is, though, that Jesus first heals him from the inside and then heals the outside. Uh, then quickly as we move along, then we are introduced to the next uh, 
Jesus follower, Levi, uh, also known as Matthew, the tax collector. And the calling of Matthew was, Matthew was this, really was a massive shockwave for what was going on in Jesus' ministry. Like this is equivalent to, to really just dropping a grenade uh, amongst your followers, who by this time were many, you know, hundreds, thousands, we don't know. But it's really like just, you know, dropping a, 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 a concussion grenade out in, into the midst of your followers. Who would dare, who would dare in that first century to call an extortionist and a traitor to be a follower and a pro- proclaimer of the gospel? Who would dare do that? What rabbi in Israel would, would make that kind of a move just when his ministry was getting rolling, just when it, was, when it was really building steam, it was really really coming together, he drops this proverbial bomb. So probably better be careful with my language. What upstanding Jew would even associate themselves with that type? Then Jesus gets quizzed, by, of course, by the religious elites, and this is just a little review from last week to get going on this week. He gets quizzed by the religious elites on why he was eating and drinking with uh, this type of people, with the tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus, you know, uh, these guys were thinking in, it in their hearts and in their minds, so Jesus calls them out on it because he can read our thoughts. In other words, these guys were concerned that someone uh, <clears throat> that had a religious following, someone that had the power to heal, and someone that spoke with the kind of authority that Jesus spoke with, they were concerned because Jesus was so far outside the, Jesus, the, the Jewish norm. What are we supposed to do with this guy? What, what, what is our approach, the religious elites were thinking? And of course, Jesus, hearing their thoughts, perceiving their thoughts, his reply to their concern, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's why that last song that we just sang is so powerful. Because it's a call to worship a God that saves those that are in sin. In reality, we know that that's all of us. That's all of them. Even the people that were thinking, why is he with these people? They were just as sinful, if not more. They just didn't recognize it. Essentially, Jesus is saying, hey, I didn't come for those who think that they can get to heaven on their own. I didn't come for the stuffy religious elites. I came for those that know their depravity and are looking for God to provide a solution. That's what Jesus is telling them. I'm looking for those that know their depravity, that have a realistic understanding and a biblical understanding of their sinfulness, and they're also looking for God to provide some sort of solution to that. Jesus is saying that he is the solution. He has the solution to mankind's sin problem. And he's saying, he's saying essentially this in his reply. And this is, kind of, this is kind of the overarching statement for all that we're going to talk about today. Jesus is saying that his gospel, that his teaching, that his words, uh, his his you know, opportunities to preach and share all that God for has for him to share, which goes right down to today as we open up our Bibles and look at his words, that his gospel is exclusive. His gospel is exclusive. It can't be mixed with the old. That's kind of our overarching thought for today. Uh, 
in case you haven't um, looked around too much, we live in a hyper-pantheistic age. And when I say hyper, I'm talking ADD to the max, hyper-pantheistic. When I say pantheistic, I hope we all understand what we're talking about. Pantheistic means that anything goes, right? You, you can believe anything you want to believe. It's, it's across the board, you know. Everybody's kind of doing their own thing. Many, many theology is probably how you would break it out. But we live in this hyper-pantheistic age. Uh, and here's the problem with the hyper-pantheistic age that we live in. Socially, all beliefs have the same merit. Globally speaking, we live in an age where not only is there pan- hyper-pantheism, but then we also have a coupled belief with that socially. I'm not talking all believers. I'm just talking that as societal norm that then all systems of belief have equal merit. The reality is, is biblically that's not true. Biblically that's not true. And that's not so, and I say that not so that then you can look down your nose at your neighbor who thinks something differently. I say that so you might have compassion on your neighbor. I say that so that you could love your neighbor more effectively. See, Jesus' gospel is exclusive. The rest of Mark chapter 2 kind of revolves around that theme. So let's dive into today's passage, if you will. We'll take it a step-by-step today rather than reading the whole thing. Mark chapter 2, verse 18 starts out. So This is after Jesus' reply about coming for the sick, coming for the sinful. Verse 18 says, The disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came to him, and they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. The conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees often revolved around these type of questions. They always had some sort of a gotcha question. They always had some sort of a trapping question. They're always trying to push him into a corner. They're always trying to make him look bad socially. Essentially, they're saying, why, why, why are they not fasting like we are? That, that's really what they're saying. Why, why are your disciples, Jesus, not fasting like, you know, we're really good at this. We've been doing it a long time. Why, Jesus, is, Jesus, uh, why is he off partying and, and having a good time with those type of people. Self-righteousness always has a way of dividing people, the us and the those. And Jesus almost always answers a different question than the one that was asked. Really, this isn't a question if, if, if we're honest about it. Like, it is a question, but it's, it's, what it is is it's a criticism wrapped in a question. That's their posture. They were criticizing what Jesus was doing. They were criticizing Jesus' disciples, which, you know, at this point, we just have a few. And they're wondering, why why are they so different? What's going on here? And they were trying to trap Jesus and create a narrative that would take Jesus down in the eyes of the public. That's the motivation. You have an upswell ministry. You have healing. You have preaching with authority. And so we got to get this guy, we got to get this guy down. That's kind of their motivation. We've got to do whatever we can do to take this guy down. He's starting to steal the show. 
The truth is, is that Jesus never broke a biblical law. He often broke, and I, sometimes I think that he did it on purpose, my thoughts on it, but he often broke their man-made laws and traditions. You see, uh, Luke 18.12 is, uh, is a good passage. It's just a little quick-hitting thing that shows where the Pharisees were well-known for their fasting twice a week. They're well-known for their fasting twice a week. In fact, fasting was one of the big three that Jesus taught on in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. You have giving. He taught about giving. He taught about praying. Then he taught about fasting. And so it's, it's not like it's not an issue. It's not like it's not an issue. In fact, in Matthew 6, Jesus teaching on these three, uh, he essentially said that they should not be done for public recognition, but rather in secret between you and God. Let's look at just the last one. On fasting, Matthew 6, 16 and through 18, Matthew records Jesus' words saying, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. There's kind of his jab towards the religious elites. Do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces <clears throat> that they may appear to be men to be fasting. So their form of fasting was to make sure that everybody knew that they weren't eating for that day. So they disfigure their faces. They have a sad countenance. They, they really put on a show in town so that people know what's going on. Assuredly, I say to you, Jesus says, that they have their reward. That's it. That's all they get. Their reward is the fact that the people that saw them know what they're doing. I don't know about you, but like, what reward is that? So you have 10 minutes of public fame? You have pub 10 minutes of public recognition that you're doing something for God? Verse 17 goes on in Matthew. It says, but when you fast, so here's Jesus' instructions. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face <clears throat> so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place and to your Father who sees in secret will reward you, excuse me, will reward you openly. That's the Jesus instructions on fasting. Don't look different than everybody else. Don't do it for show. Don't do it, uh, and, the, and these guys that were quizzing Jesus here in Mark chapter 2 they're wondering why Jesus' disciples are not doing like they're doing and doing it all for show, doing it all for public recognition. What's their problem? Why are you so out of step? See, the Jewish religious system was all about public appearance, recognition, and, rep and applause. It's similar to Paul's criticism regarding circumcision out of Galatians 6.12 where he says, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh. Now Paul's talking about circumcision, but the same motivation of the heart is true here in Mark chapter 2, where they're quizzing him, and they, they want to they know why Jesus' disciples are not making a good showing in the flesh. Jesus says in Mark 2 that he had came to change all that, that he had brought a new way to believe, a new way to think, and a new way to relate to God. He starts with asking them this question that undermines the premise of their quote-unquote religious duties. Let's look at it, verse 19. Mark records in verse 19, he says, And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they, <clears throat> then they will fast in those days. So, so just as I said, Jesus often returns a question that's given to him. He returns with another question that's about something totally different to make his point. He never answers the question directly. And by using this illustration of a wedding, Jesus draws on a powerful picture than amongst the Jews. Here's that powerful picture. That during the week-long wedding celebration, and yes, in those days, the wedding celebration just went on and on and on. Now, Morgan's had a couple opportunities, if you know our daughter Morgan, who's in northern India. She's had the opportunity to uh, take in a couple weddings, I think, since she's been there. And it's kind of that same flavor. This is an all-week event, and there's different things that happen each day as they go along. And uh, one of the things that kind of struck me, I don't know if struck is a word, struck me? It's past past tense. It did happen in the past past about a month ago. Dennis has asked me, he says, how do you preach and listen to your own sermons at the same time? It's a real good question. But uh, one of the things that struck me about what Morgan uh, was able to be involved in is uh, for the late, I think for the ladies, is this the ladies and the guys? They wear just the ladies. They wear a different dress every day, right? And, and really, like, they're really dolled up. You know, bright, flashy colors, lots of, I don't know, ornamentation. They look like a Christmas tree to me, but... Uh, that's just the culture. And it's a week-long party. It's a week-long thing. And so was it true here in the Jewish culture of that first century. Maybe it's still, is it still that way today? Is it still a week-long party or longer? Yeah, I think so. I check with my local Hebrew expert in the back row from time to time. But during these week-long wedding celebrations, the rabbis declared kind of this, this point and purpose is that the joy was joy in and of itself, that the celebration was more important than the religious rituals. That's the point that Jesus is making. He's saying, hey, the, 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 you know, should, the, should the, uh, the groomsmen, should they be involved in religious obligation and rules and duty and all of that? that's outside of the Mosaic law. Should they be involved in all of that while the bridegroom's here? No. No. So these people that were quizzing Jesus were actually kind of violating their own social expectations. The problem is they just didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know that he was talking about himself necessarily. They are wondering, why, why, why are we talking about weddings all of a sudden? Jesus is making this point. He says, hey, I'm here. I'm here. I'm present. And it's a good thing to celebrate in my presence. That's what he's saying. It's good to celebrate in my presence. And he's saying I've come to do something new. And that something new is incompatible with the old. It's, some, it's, it's incompatible. He's saying I'm, I'm bringing a fresh perspective, a new system. And he gives us kind of two illustrations to make that point. The first one there is in... The next verse, verse 21, Mark 2. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment. 
or else the new peace pulls away from the old, and the terror is made worse. And no one puts new wine skins in or new wine in old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But the new wine must be put into new wineskins. See, there's a danger of trying to put something new on something old, and it's a clear illustration. Ladies, you know that if that if you're uh, going to sew a patch on a piece of clothes, just like Jesus was talking about. You better make sure you throw it in the washing machine first, right? I'm not a genius when it comes to sewing. I can barely, you know, tie a grain sack around the top. But anybody can kind of get these illustrations. Anybody can kind of understand these things. And the same principle is true when it comes to putting wine in wineskins. A wineskin expanded under the pressure of fermentation. So if, an, <clears throat> if a new and unfermented uh, wine was put in an old, brittle wineskin it was sure to burst. It had expanded all it could holding the first round. Then it got, gets dried out between uses, but that, that skin has already stretched. It's already given all it can give. So if you go a second round with wine that still needs to ferment, it still needs to expand, it's going to burst. It's going to blow. And Jesus' point was made clear by these two examples. What he's trying to get them to understand, and I think what's valuable for all of us is this, is that you can't fit Jesus' new life into the old forms. You can't, you can't fit. He's saying it's impossible to fit the new life that Jesus is bringing on the scene and the new life that he's brought on the scene for you and for me. You can't fit that new life into these old systems, into these old forms. No, he's traded fasting for feasting. He's traded sackcloth and ashes for a robe and righteousness. He's traded a spirit of heaviness for a garment of praise and mourning for joy. And he's also traded law for grace. Jesus came to introduce something new, not to patch up something old. And I'm here to say that he's not come to patch up your life. Jesus didn't die on the cross just to make a little bit better version of what you already had going and what I already had going. That's not it at all. That's not the gospel. We, a lot of us live that way. There was a lot of years that I lived that way. So I understand. I get it. But he didn't come and he didn't die and he didn't sacrifice. He wasn't buried and rose again on the third day, according to the gospel. He, he didn't do all of that just to make a little bit better version of you. Right, Just to, to kind of chisel off the edges. His gospel is one of replacement. <clears throat> really all the Old Testament points towards Jesus coming to solve our deepest need. A little tie back to last week's sermon. And of course this is what salvation is all about. In doing this, Jesus doesn't destroy the law, but he fulfills it. He fulfills it. And I love this illustration. It's a lot like a, uh, an acorn is fulfilled when it grows into an oak tree. That's the acorn's job. The acorn's job is to grow into an oak tree. And there's a sense in which, sure, the acorn is gone. So it's buried in the ground and then eventually it, 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 it breaks through and it sprouts and it 
comes up through the soil and it grows into a whole tree. So there's a sense in which that, that seed is buried and gone, but it's actually, there's a greater sense in which it fulfilled its destiny, its purpose. And the same can be said about the Old Testament in this way. The Old Testament has fulfilled its purpose in Christ. That's the greatness of the Old Testament. And that's really why we can't just uh, get on this, the, the, uh, one of the most current Christian trends is kind of just you know ditching the Old Testament because it's irrelevant anymore. We can't get on that band. I won't teach that way. We won't teach that way in this church because the, there's so much richness and, and greatness in the Old Testament. But all of the Old Testament points towards Christ. All of the Old Testament points forward. They all look forward. Man, when's the guy going to come? When's the, the seed going to come out of, gener, uh, out of uh, Genesis that's going to save us all? And so all of the Old Testament is looking forward, and there's a ton of richness there. I don't want to get too much on a tangent. But just really to say that the, the greatness of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. Let's go on. The second example, the second quiz that Jesus has to face, there is in chapter 2, verses 22 through 28, where Mark records, Now it happened that when he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath... And as, they went, <clears throat> and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do you, they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? And he rose, <clears throat> and he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar and the high priest and ate the showbread which is not lawful to eat except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Again, here's another great example where Jesus doesn't just answer their question directly. Well, why, why are your guys doing this? You know, it's, it's, you, it's illegal on Sunday. Or it's, well, for them it would be Saturday. It's illegal on Saturday to do what they're doing. He doesn't answer their question. He asks another question. So another two good examples of the way that he handles criticism. He gets people to think differently. And there was nothing wrong with what they did because they were, <clears throat> their gleaning was not considered Stealing, according to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, which essentially states it's fine to pl pluck grain on the Sabbath. Don't take a sickle into the field. That's what's illegal. In other words, you can't roll in and harvest on the Sabbath if you were a Jew in the first century. You can't roll in and start harvesting a field. But if you need to pluck a few heads, if you need a little something to eat, not an issue. Now... <clears throat> I happen to have a wee bit of experience in this field. No pun intended. For those who like my farming jokes, they're really pretty stale. But here's the thing. They were plucking heads. How many heads of wheat does it take to make even a slice of bread? Anybody know? Anybody want to guess? <laughs> mhm. Mm more than you can hand, more than you can hold in two hands for by a long shot. So these guys were just plucking a few here and there and just eating the grain, which most farmers that's kind of normal, you know. Most people out in the country you just 
nibble on something, whatever's there, whatever's growing. But they weren't breaking the Mosaic law that is listed for us there in Deuteronomy. They would have been breaking it had they went in with sickles and, and rope and been making sheaves out of standing grain. The issue was that <clears throat> wasn't the, how much they were eating, though. It was the fact of which day they were doing it on. And the rabbis had made this elaborate list of do's and don'ts relevant to the Sabbath. And this, these elaborate list of do's and don'ts, this was a violation of those, not the original instructions. Jesus followed the original instructions. His guys followed the original instructions. Jesus said that the Sabbath is made for man. In other words, he's saying to them, you guys got it all backwards. You think that you're made to do this? And so you stack a bunch of extra rules and regulations and you stack those on top of the people in this country and burden them down with those rules and regulations because you think you're made for this, but you got it all in reverse. He says it was made for you. And so it's a good thing. It's good to take a break. And there needs to be some sort of a regular rest in our schedule. That's why God made it. That's why he made it. The Sabbath was made for you and for I and for all people to take some sort of a regular break. They were all hung up on the how and the when and not at all concerned with the why of the Sabbath. And, and here's my take on the Sabbath piece is that we push too hard. I'm, as guil- I'm probably more guilty than this than anybody in this room. I'd almost guarantee it. We push way too hard and we leave no margin in life. We, need, we leave no margin, no break, no, no spot to rest in our lives. And, and I get that. And if you're kind of a hard charger type, you know, busy all the time, you know, you, you start thinking about your own schedule and you'll see that that's true of you as well. But God created the day so that we could take a break. He didn't create us to take a break. He created the day for us to take a break. That's why for those that are real hard chargers, it's hard to stop. It's hard to not leave here, rush home, grab a bite, eat a taco, blast out the door, and go do something and make something happen. Or, or, it's, or it's really hard on Saturday morning to not just get up and just go, 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 because it's a beautiful fall day, a beautiful fall Saturday, and you've got so much to do, and your list is a mile and a half long. That's why I don't make lists right because my list would just never end but you're used to it and you're like man i'm just feeling guilty because i got all these and we just we never leave any margin in life you need to leave some margin in life this part is more for me than anyone you guys can all go get a cup of coffee i'll preach to myself (laughs) but there does need to be some regular rest in our schedule That's why God made the day. And then he says, Therefore the Son of Man, referring to himself, then is also Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, hey, you know, he's processing their concern, but their concern is leaving out who the Lord really is. 
Their Lord is all these extra rules and regulations, all these, these extra commands that were sta- they were stacking up to make themselves look good and, and to, to elevate them in society. They forgot who the Lord of the Sabbath really was. And Jesus is saying, me. He's saying, I'm the Lord of your Sabbath. I'm as much of the Lord of your Sabbath as I am the Lord of your workday. I need to be the, and not I need to be, I am, whether we want to recognize it or not, I am the Lord of even your break. And it's good for you to take a break. Now, there's a whole chapter that deals, that is a real parallel, if you will, to chapter 2 of Mark. There's a great chapter in the Old Testament that expands on uh, and, and, and carries on about both of these topics that Jesus was being criticized for. And I really am curious, and maybe someday I'll get an answer to this question, I really am curious if these Pharisees that kept trying to trap Jesus were even aware of these two area, uh, areas that they were trapping him in that, that the prophet Isaiah spoke exclusively about. Like very specifically, Isaiah speaks about fasting and about the Sabbath in one chapter, one passage. And no doubt they knew what it said, because they had to memorize it. My question is, and my thought is, is did, were they even aware in the moment, as they're trying to bring Jesus down, of what the God they say they serve has to say about these two issues? And Isaiah gives us then God's proper application, and it's really in parallel with what Jesus' whole life and ministry Isaiah gives us this this application. I'm going to give you a quick outline of it real quick. Verses 1 through 5 is all the wrong ways and motives to fast. Verses 1 through 5 is all the wrong ways and motives. I'm in Isaiah 58, by the way, if I didn't mention it. And then verses 6 through 12 are all the right ways to fast and the outcomes of a godly fast. Then just two verses at the end. 13 and 14 are the goodness of taking a regular day off and what God's intentions were there. I kind of, in the time that we have left, and I know that this message is probably going to be a little on the short side, but in the time that we have left, I would like to kind of go through this. So turn, if you would, to Isaiah 58 and follow along. Isaiah 58 starts off, Cry aloud and spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. God's making a statement to Isaiah. He's trying to bring correction to what was going on there. In verse 2 he says, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of God, they ask me, they ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Verse 3 says, Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and take no and you take no notice? In fact, in the days of your fast you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. 
Indeed, you fast for strife and debate, and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day, to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? So God's kind of asking them through Isaiah, like, is this what it's about? Is it about exploiting other people? Is it about taking advantage of other people? Is it about strife? Is it about wickedness? Is it about, uh, uh, you know, looking like the Pharisees did in the first century? You know, bowing their heads like a bulrush where they were definitely noticed in public? Is that what the fast is all about? Is it about looking, sackcloth and ashes? Is it about looking, you know, making sure that you look repentant to everybody around you? Is that what the fast is about? God's really challenging their premise in that day. Would you call this a fast? Would you call this an acceptable day to the Lord? Then verse 6, God tells us what is acceptable. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? And here's God's view on fasting. To loose the bonds of wickedness to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring <clears throat> to your house the poor and who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh, that your, then your light shall break forth in the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard, and then you shall call on the Lord, and the Lord will answer. And you shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. This is God's perspective. Uh, the thing about fasting is, is in that first century, and they're, as they're quizzing Jesus, it's all about them. It's all about their their perspective, it's all about their noti- you know, notoriety, it's all about their recognition. And you notice the tone and the flavor as God lays out for Isaiah and for Israel what a real fast is all about. It's not about you, he says. It's not about you at all. It's about you being a blessing to other people. That's what fasting should accomplish in a sense. So if you go back up and you look there, uh, then your light, verse 8, then your light shall break forth like the morning and your healing shall spring forth speedily. A lot of times we want that physical healing. We looked at this in previous messages. We want that physical healing. But we're not necessarily living a life that is reflective of this type of attitude. We just want the healing part, but we don't want the serving part. We don't want the being a blessing part. We want to consume Take in all that God has for us without any mind for a brother or sister. But the healing's going to come. The healing comes. And verse <clears throat> 9 goes on to say, If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, 
Then your light shall, <clears throat> shall dawn in the darkness. And your darkness shall be as noonday. The Lord will guide you continual, continuously and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose, water, whose waters do not fail. God is essentially telling Israel, and I think he's telling us today, to, that, that, that when it comes to fasting, when it comes to fasting, that it isn't about you. It's about God. It's about serving other people. It's about being Jesus right here in this community or the community that you live in. It's not about pointing the finger and speaking wickedness. And if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, and you, your light shall dawn in the darkness. That God has a, a plan and a purpose for you in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your tribulation. God says, hey, hey, stay with my plan. Stay focused on me. And, there's a, and your light's going to shine. There will be a light at the end of the tunnel. I love how Dave Ramsey says, you know, hopefully it's not an oncoming train. Many times we get in these mental traps and emotional traps that there's no light at the end of the tunnel. And the deeper that we get into those traps, the deeper that we'll really find that who we're focused on, we're just focused on ourselves. And God's saying, hey, don't focus on yourself. Follow the instructions and focus on me. It should be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Verse 12 says, those from among you shall be built, <clears throat> those from among you shall build the old waste places, and you shall rise up the fountains of many generations. What God's talking about is, is that, that fasting, in a sense, self-denial, in a sense, means that you're focused on the Lord, and you're focused on helping other people, and the natural outflow from that is getting back old ground that somebody else has conquered, that somebody else has taken, that's laid to waste, that's shot, that's buried. What part of your life has been laid to waste? What part uh, uh, of, of, of you or your family or your marriage is really desolate? Because what the Lord's saying here is those places are going to spring back to life as we follow out God's instructions. That's his purpose and that's his plan with it. Let's move on. And you shall be called the repairer of the breach. That's where I wanted to get to. I wish it wasn't on two pages. And you shall be called repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. See, God wants us to be active and purposeful in our communities. He wants us to be the people that rise up, that put our hand to the plow as it were in our communities, that bring healing, that bring repair, that bring a message of hope and of healing and of wholeness. And, and we can't have that message on our lips when all we're doing is kind of focus down our own tunnel. It's impossible. It's impossible. The last couple of verses... Talk about the Sabbath. Verse 13 says, If you turn 
away your foot from the Sabbath, so here's the warning, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, <clears throat> of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. And the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How do we summarize? How do we summarize just this passage? 14 verses out of Isaiah 58. God's perspective, I believe, is really summarized by the words of Jesus when he says simply this, love God and love one another. <laughs> if you're loving God, you're going to follow what God says, including taking a break, some sort of a regular something. And I say it that way intentionally because I'm not going to stand up here and say, you know, hey, man, if you're, you know, if you're doing anything on a Sunday afternoon, you're out of bounds with God. If you're doing some, if you're not, you know, or if it's Saturday, whatever day. I think, I think that we all need to find some margin through the course of the week where we're taking a break. And I stand at the front of that list, as I've mentioned. We don't do that, though. We fail in the long stretch, I believe, to love the Lord. And then the second commandment is the same, love your neighbor. The first 12 verses out of Isaiah 58 is all about being sacrificial towards your neighbor. It's all about being, being uh, a sacrificial towards those that are right around you and not focusing so much on yourself, but focusing on the people that God has brought into your lives. That is what Jesus' disciples, that's what he was up to, and that's what Jesus' disciples then could walk in freedom, knowing they don't have to panic with the pharisaical pharisaical expectations of the first century. Oh, yeah, we got to fast twice a week, and we, got to, and we can't do this on a Saturday. We can't. They didn't have to panic. Well, you don't see any panic in that way, in those two ways with Jesus' disciples. You definitely don't see it with Jesus. And he did both of those things. He did both of those things. We're going to see in the life of Jesus where he fasted, you know, and he was there plucking heads on the Sabbath as well. But you don't see any panic in how he operates. Why? Because he was loving God. He's loving God's word, and he was loving the people that are right around him. That's the summary of his life, really, in a lot of ways. He was just loving the Lord and loving the people that were around him. The worship team will come on up, Jonathan, Daniel, and Bill, will, Tim, will close with our last song.